Thanks for coming today. So glad to worship with you and, and uh, connect in the middle of a summer where a whole lot of crazy stuff goes on and just to be able to get centered in, in that time. Um, right now we have six of our own who are in Honduras and they're probably worshiping right now with a, a group of people who they're there to reach and then tomorrow and they're doing feeding centers. We're going to pray for them at the end. Um, you know, you, a lot of you are, are praying for them. Uh, tomorrow they start some training with Hondurans who have given their lives to Jesus and are spreading the message, and they're going to help help train them with that. So it's it's just good stuff is going on. Um, and today we're finishing a series in the book of uh, Philippians. So if today's your first day, you got about 14 weeks of, of messages to go back and listen to. Why don't you go ahead and do that now, and then you'll be ready for today. Now, hopefully it'll make sense regardless whether it's your first time or however many times you've been here. But if you've got a Bible, I'd invite you to take a look. Last, last part of the book of Philippians, it's in the New Testament. Uh, we're in chapter 4, toward the end of chapter 4 today. Now, um, there is a, a certain phrase that is known as the most overused cliche in all of um, scripts in Hollywood. It shows up, I think, in more movies than any other particular kind of phrase. Um, and it is, it, it is so overused that people, there are scriptwriters who say, uh, you get blackballed if you ever submit a script now that's got this phrase in it. Now, there's a lot of phrases that get used that way, but I want to see if you can pick out that phrase from this sample. Here we go. You still don't get the Okay, not sure you could get it. That is a sample that of a much longer collection of that phrase. Now, let me ask you, how do you know someone really gets it? I mean, you can talk to your kids and you can tell them several times over what they're supposed to do and what they're not supposed to. And you say, do you get it? And then you find out that they never got it. You've got workers and co-workers and people under you or sometimes people over you and you explain it and they say they got it and they clearly don't get it. So how do you know that somebody gets it? That is kind of what we're going to see here because um, Paul the Apostle is going to give us a, a hint at the end of his letter that he wrote to a church plant, a church he'd started and that he had, had left and entrusted others to lead. And he's writing back to them. They had, had supplied him with some um, supplies while he's in prison. This is one of the prison epistles. He's writing from uh, being, ch- uh, while well, he's chained to a Roman guard. He's not sure if he's going to live or die. And he writes this letter to them, which makes it all the more remarkable what the content of the letter is. And that you, we've seen that. And here's what we've seen in here. That if somebody really gets it, and, and Paul has got something he clearly has wanted to communicate to them and to us, I believe, that God is, wants to say to us. If somebody really, really gets it, there's going to be a couple things happen. One is it, it's going to show up in some noticeable change. First, they're going to have some internal change. 
there's going to be something in their attitude that's going to that's going to show up. And then there's it's going to show up in an external change. There's going to be something about their behaviors that evidence the fact that they get it. So Paul has written this letter to them and he's saying, I'm imprisoned and it's for the gospel's sake and I'm not sure if I'm going to live or die, but I, there's something I want to say to you guys. Now, there's a lot of things he has said to them, but central to what he said is summarized in Philippians 1, 6 and Philippians 2, 12 and a couple other places, but he keeps coming back to it and it's that there is something that's true. In fact, there's a triplet of truths that he highlights, that he says are true in his life and true in the life of anybody who's crossed the line of faith and given their heart to Jesus Christ. It is true 24-7, every moment of every day. It's true in your life right now. It's true in my life. And he says, but if you get it, if you can get this, it will change everything for you. And, and if when we summarize that truth around here, we said we put it into three phrases that just kind of represent the collection of what he said. That at this very moment in your life, if I am rightly connected with God through His Son, if I've been forgiven for my sins and embraced as His child, there are three, there's a triplet of truths that are true right now. In, and He says, in every and any, any and every circumstance, no matter the situation, that's a big difference. It's not because of my circumstances I can say this. It is absolutely true. Here are the truths. Number one, God is good. Right now, at this moment, there is a good God who has said that everything he allows to go on in the life of a person who's in his child, they can be guaranteed he's working it together for their good. It is God who's at work in you to accomplish his good purpose. The one who started a good work in you, he says, will complete it. So the second truth is not only is God good at this moment, God is in control. Right now, in Nice, France, God is in control. Right now, in your world, in our political system, in our future, in your household, in your workplace, God is in control. There are things going on that we might not like, that He may not like. But there is a God who is weaving together all those things, and He absolutely knows what He's doing. He, nothing is surprising Him. Nothing is getting past Him. He's not wringing His hands wondering what should happen next. God is good, God is in control, and the third thing is God will prevail. He will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. He's going to accomplish something right and good. It's going to bring glory to Him, it's going to be good to you, and He will prevail in the end. You can lock it down. You can know that for sure in the middle of the circumstances right now. So Paul, in prison, not knowing if he's going to live or die, says, I might die, I might live. You know what, if I die, it's okay. If I live, it's okay. Why? Because I know three things are true. And he says, even my imprisonment, God is working for good because others, the, at the end of this, very end of this, if you look at the last couple of verses, he goes, those who are in Caesar's household who are believers greet you. People have come to know the message of Jesus Christ because Paul is in prison. He goes, oh no, he's in control. He knows what he's doing. He's using this. It's accomplishing good. In the middle of his circumstances, he's saying that's true. Now, if you've been here for the last couple months, you've heard that. It's one thing to hear it, right? It's one thing to be able to say it. The question is, for me, do I get it? Do I really get it? And it might surprise you what Paul's going to say, because at the end of this, he's going to throw in a couple things, and I believe that the context of it, and then when I compare it to some other places of Scripture, is clearly saying, I think Paul thinks, is confident that the Philippians get it. 
The reason he, I think he, how he knows is that in his final words, he gives a clue. And so take a look at this at the end of verse, chapter 4, verse 14. He's just gotten done saying, I know the secret of being content in every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. And then he says this. And if you might pause and go, well, this is just like the extra stuff they put at the end of letters. I don't believe that. I think it's a very much tied into what he just said. I think this is how he knows they get it. When he says to the people in Philippi, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as, as you Philippians know, in the early days of, of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out for, for Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For when, even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid again and again when I was in, in need. Not that I was looking for a gift, but I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Now, pause there a minute for a minute. You go, wait, okay, what? what's he talking about? Remember that Epaphroditus had taken to him some supplies and, and offerings and gifts, things to help him. There was financial contribution given to Paul. And we see here that happened multiple times. Here's why, why Paul understands, why, why he knows that he's confident that these people get it. Because two things are true if they get that triplet of truths. One is internally, like he says about himself, internally you feel joy. You can relax. You can unclench. Because in any and every, in any and every circumstance, you know that God is good, He's in control, He will prevail. You relax about it. That's what they would feel. The peace of God, He says, which passes all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's something internal to them. But you know what? The, the, the biggest test, the biggest proof, is something that happens externally. And what's happened externally in the Philippians is they have become enthusiastic givers. They give. Their behavior has changed because of the truth that they've been given. It's tied together. I know that because not just does it tie it together here, but he, he talks about them in, when he writes to another church in Corinth. This is from 2 Corinthians 8. We did a series through 2 Corinthians a while ago. And he, and he references the churches in Macedonia. In particular, it, he uses the same language, and I'm very confident he's talking about the, the Philippians here. He says, now, brothers in Corinth, we want you to know about the, uh, about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Okay, the, uh, There's others, and, and one of those is Philippi. Look at what it says. Out of the most severe trial, okay, there's circumstances, right? Out of the most severe trial, they were in the middle of trials, it says... Their overflowing joy, internal evidence, and their extreme poverty, in the middle of their poverty, it says that it, that it welled up into rich generosity. I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their own ability, entirely on their own. They urgently, not only, look at this, they pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in the service to the saints. They did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. Do you see the connection that's going on? He's in the middle of their circumstances, separated from their trial, the, what, they, what they felt like their needs were. They were somehow aware of God's presence in their life and the truth of who he is, that there was this joy welling up within them. And even in the midst of their poverty, it expressed itself. They became enthusiastic givers. There's no expression, right? 
If you want to know what, what's really behind it, what the real motives are, what somebody really thinks or really feels, the old, the old expression is this, follow the money. Follow the money. See who's going to benefit the most, who's, who's manipulating the money in political crisis, in, in, in uh, business problems. Just follow the money and you'll see what, what people really do and why they do it. That principle is true from God's point of view too. Because Jesus said it very clearly. We'll come back and look at this again later. This is his principle. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Sounds decidedly unspiritual, doesn't it? Okay, you want to know what people really think about their relationship with God? You want to see if how they really trust? You want to see where their heart really is? Follow the money. Because where the money is, that'll show you. That'll really show you. Don't listen to their words, not their sentiments. Follow the money. It'll, it'll, it'll indicate something. And so what that means is this. Paul writing for God says, in, in essence... If you have the shift happen in your heart, and in that shift is you, you, you've, you've shifted your focus from the stuff of earth to the stuff of heaven. If, if you've shifted from being somebody who's self-directed to somebody who's God-directed, if you shift for your focus from on what your needs are and how you meet them to the fact that there is somebody else who's made promises about all that and he's got that covered, it will evidence itself that you unclench internally with joy and peace externally with how you hold on to material stuff and so he says oh, it was good of you philippians it was good of you to share to be become enthusiastic givers he was even surprised by how much the reason why that's so is because it became true of them that they knew that the provision that they had and the the outcome things were happening in their life the crises they were in they were un, utterly disconnected from whether they accumulated something or whether they accommodated something. So, so God says, if those things are separated, if, you're, if, you're, if the outcome is absolutely in somebody else's hands and it's not related to what you get or what you accomplish, then something changes within you. You don't need it anymore. We talked last week about what do I need in my life? If I really believe that, then I don't need anything. I'm going to be provided by that by outside my own efforts. Paul wrote to the Corinthians this way. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should, uh, should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly and under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that in all things, at all times, having all that you, see the word, need, you'll abound in every good work. The outcome of what I need is completely independent from what I can control. And therefore, I unclench about that. So what do I do with it? I become somebody who says, this will be fun. I get to be like Jesus. I get to invest this. I get to start giving, not out of compulsion, but just because it's kind of cool to do that. Back to Matthew 6. This is what happens. You don't wind up storing for yourselves treasures on earth. 
where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But instead, you just wind up storing for yourself treasures in heaven, where those things don't corrupt them. Moth and rust don't, do not destroy, where thieves do not break in and steal. And then he says that line, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. See, okay, think about it this way. When you absolutely know the outcome of something before it's over, doesn't it affect your attitude and your actions while you're going through it? Okay, for example, a lot of you watched the National Championship football game, NCAA football game, in January of 2015. Right? Ohio State against Oregon. You watch the game. Some of you own a copy of that game, don't you? And you watch that. Some of you far too regularly. You watch that. You go in and you put it on and you watch it. Now, if you do that, you see something. If you watch it from the beginning, you see something. And you see... This is what you see. This is what you see. This is a snapshot from the, in real time from the New York Times when it was giving a, a kind of a log of what was going on during the game. And the New York Times ran this shot... And this shot is in the first quarter of that game. Now, if you've got a a DVD of this or a recording of it, you get to this shot. You know what's happening in this shot? This is what the New York Times said. The Ducks get on the board first. As Marcus Mariota connects with Keenan Lowe on a seven-yard TD. Two minutes and 39 seconds was all it took for Oregon to advance 75 yards in 11 plays. Super Mariota goes four for four on his first drive. Score, Oregon seven. Ohio State, nothing. Now, when you go and you pull out your recording and you watch this game again and you see that, let me ask you, is your reaction, is your attitude about it the same or different than when it first happened? I'm sorry, but I go, I go regularly back and watch a 30-year-old video of the highlights of the 1986 World Series <laughs> when the Mets are down by two runs in the 10th inning of Game 6 and they're going to lose and nobody's on base and there's a little hit and there's a little hit and then there's a, and then there's a wild pitch and then there's a dribbler that gets through Bill Buckner's legs. And you know what? I watch it because I know how it's going to turn out. And it hasn't turned out anything like that for my life ever since. (laughs) But you have a different perspective on your circumstances and even on your attitude about your things when you know the outcome. You know the outcome. So when you watch it, you unclench. You relax. You say, this is going to be fun. That's what happens when people really, really get it really get it that at this very moment they are connected with a god who is guaranteed their outcome who's guaranteed to take care of them who is guaranteed has guaranteed he will provide everything they need he will he will meet them where they are that he's going to work together for their good in this moment in this circumstance when they really get it they unclench and that means they become unclenched people when it comes to what they got and the philippians have become in enthusiastic givers to the point where paul says they even surprised us because see this you know this is true when you're born you are a taker you're born as a taker man you you 
If you don't get your milk, if you don't get your diaper change, if you don't get everything you want, you let the world know that this is unacceptable. You are a taker. Later on, you learn that, well, maybe sometimes just in order to not get in trouble all the time, you have to give a little bit. So you become a manipulative giver. (laughs) Just enough to get people off your back. But this is what happens when, when we come to know that God purchases our lives and he gives and he gives us everything we need and so he says i'm just looking to get find surplus to, for you to dispense in my name you get to just share in my stuff when we know that those truths are still there then we can begin to shift and some of us then start as what we might call resistant misers you know we know that people want and we go Ugh. And, and, yeah, I, I'm skeptical about things and I'm kind of clenched about them and I'm just a little bit self-preserving and then God gets a hold of us a little bit more and we go, maybe we shift. Okay, I shift. And then we become what you could call token contributors. Okay. I guess I can give a little bit. I guess God kind of takes care of me. So, you know, I'll relieve my guilt because, you know, I feel really guilty when, you know, there are churches that talk about giving all the time and they just, ugh, you know, I'm just... Relieve my guilt a little bit. So I'm going to be a, a token contributor. I'm, I'm going to protect my image. I'm going to, uh, uh, when I feel moved by something, okay. And God knocks on the door a little bit more and he says, don't you realize? You don't have to clench anything. You don't have to hoard anything. It's, I, remember the promises? And then we move and we become what we might call calculated donors. We have a certain percentage and we don't go a little, in, uh, one cent over that percentage. But we got the percentage. We're good. Isn't there a percent they say somewhere in the Bible? Yeah, I'm supposed to do that? Okay. I think I'm supposed to do that. So I'm going to fulfill the general requirements. That's what I'm going to do. And I'll respond, maybe I'll respond in extremes when there's a real big need that comes out. Like maybe I can feel better and then I'll do that. But here's, what, here's, what, here's how the Philippians got it. They said, if this is true, if what this guy's telling us is true, if there's a way that I can have joy and contentment, and be confident, have, have a peace that passes anybody's understanding because all those things are true in my life, well, heck, I can just start giving everything away because it's going to be cool to see what he does. It's going to be an adventure. And they move from being misers or token contributors or calculated owners, and they become enthusiastic givers, sacrificial givers people who are unbridled, people who exhibit full stewardship, and, and, and they, they live that out. This is, let, let's, this is what um, Paul, again, wrote to the Corinthians about this. Because they needed, Corinthians needed to correct it. He kept invoking the Philippians and saying, look at those guys, look at those guys. And this is what he says. See, each one should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver, enthusiastic giver. Philippians had become that kind. When, when I, was, I was in a store, there's a lady, and I was all annoyed because she was, had a bunch of stuff, and then she pulls out this wallet. She's got coupons everywhere. I mean, you know, she's got coupons on coupons. Here's a half-off, my half-off coupon. You know, it's like, I, you know, she, and, I, and it just slows things down. I'm all annoyed. And she gets done, and she looks back, and apparently I've got some stuff there. And she pulls out a thing, and she, and she leaves, and she goes, here. I was a buy one, get one, and I was buying two things for the thing I was buying. All of a sudden, I go, you're the greatest lady I've ever met. Can I come stand behind you every time you go shopping? It just changed my whole attitude about it. 
And I thought about later, and I don't know her motives and everything else, but I thought, you know, when you've got all your stuff cared for, and you, then you can kind of turn around and go, well, what, let, let me do this. But all her stuff, all the stuff cared for in our lives is not stuff that we have hoarded enough supplies. Remember, it's not about what we supply or accommodate that results in our peace or our joy or our contentment. If we separate those things too, then we go, well, that means I got the whole load I can offload somewhere. What can God do with this? I get to be part of that. Can I just ask you just a very, when I just gave you those little categories of what kind of givers we are, if you're objective about your, which one would you say you tend to be? Can I just ask you to think about that? If somebody gets it, the truths that we've seen, they move more and more progressively toward being the enthusiastic giver. So what does that look like? This is what it looks like. Look at Philippians 4, verse 15. As you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except you only. Now, there's something that's true about them as an enthusiastic giver from that. And that's, this is, I think this is true of those who are. They give regardless how it compares to others. Paul says, there's not, no one else is doing it, but you did. Now, I want to tell you that my nature is, I will do what everybody else does. And if they're not doing, not doing, willing to do their part, then I'm not going to do my part. And that comes from having a brother who was worthless and shiftless growing up. <laughs> younger brother. It's okay, he doesn't even listen to these messages online, so... And I remember constantly saying, you know, we had all these chores and responsibilities, and I was the responsible older brother. <laughs> I would want to do my stuff, and he would never want to do his stuff. He would just stuff, shove it all in a closet or whatever, and we would get, like, equal rewards or disciplines regarding, you know, what we did. It's like, this is completely unfair. And I would stand and say, if he doesn't do his part, I don't need to do my part. And my parents, because they were good parents, said, wow, are you stupid? Who wrote that rule? That's not the rule. You do your part because it's your part. You know what? An enthusiastic giver shifts in their mind. They don't do what because everybody else does their part. They say, it doesn't matter what you do. There's something that's changed in my soul. I'm walking around with a peace and a rest and a confidence. And I'm, a, I'm just going to do this. The Philippians had no other churches doing it. But still they did. Here's, here's another thing that was true. They give even when it isn't overtly asked all the time. They don't have to be leveraged. They don't have to be reminded. They give because it's a part of their heart. Do you see what it says in, in verse uh, uh, 16? Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid. Now, it's one thing when people stand and give impassioned pleas and say, would you please give? Well, I, there's a need. And we go, oh, of course, I'll... But you know what? He was already gone. He was in a whole other area of the world. It says, even when I was in Thessalonica, you gave me aid. There was something that was true about their enthusiastic giving. Giving doesn't wait until it's asked all the time. It just continues to do it. It, it's, it does it because their joy is what's driving them. And their joy is being carried with them. It is not the need that drives them. It's the joy. Do you know somebody, can, can you think of somebody, who comes to your mind? When you think of somebody, who, when they walk into an environment, you just notice they're immediately just naturally looking 
for how they can bless somebody? Who can they talk to who needs talking to? Who looks like they're alone? Who could they encourage? Do you know anybody like that? Do you know anybody who doesn't have to be asked or reminded? Can I just encourage you? If somebody just came to your mind, would you tell them that they came to your mind? Would you just encourage them? Would you write them a text or a note? You can do it right now if you want to. Just say, I thought of you as somebody who when they enter the room or when they enter the environment, they're always looking how they can give. Because when they do that, they reflect the character of somebody who's been transformed. Somebody who's not about their needs first and foremost. Somebody who's got something going on in their own lives that's enough and sufficient that they can look at others first. That's what the Philippians were doing. Here's another thing that was true of them from this passage. They gave consistently and repeatedly as a lifestyle. Again, do you see the next phrase? Verse 16. When I was in Thessalonica, he sent me aid again and again. That phrase in the Greek just simply means repeatedly over and over. It was like a non-stop cycle. This happened over and over and over again. There's a mindset that they had when they received whatever came into their life. It is the mindset of first fruits. It's an Old Testament concept. It was transferred into the New Testament too. That when that you realize that everything I have, everything I'm given is not mine. I don't care if you earned it. I don't care if you sweat for it. You still were provided it by a God who is in who is good and in control and prevailing in your life. And He's supplied it. And the first thing you do when it comes in says, "Okay, off the top, who do I who do I how do I give back to God?" How do I bless somebody else? How do I do this regularly? Doesn't matter. I don't wait till the end of the month and find out whether I got anything left. I trust God because it comes from Him. And remember, He has met all my needs. He will meet all my needs. He keeps saying that. He will meet all your needs when you do this. So I give the first fruits. I know I'm secure and I'm guaranteed. God is in, so God has entrusted me the privilege to give away the resources. Because it's utterly disconnected from providing contentment for myself. Here's, here's the, the other thing they do that's true of an enthusiastic giver. And again, we're not just talking about money. We're talking about serving. We're talking about meeting other people's needs. Being a steward of what you've been given. And this is, in verse 18, you see that they give, an enthusiastic giver gives as, a, as an act of sacrifice and worship. Not out of not out of trying to earn some kind of acceptance with God or favor with God. It says in verse 18, you see? They are, this is the end of the verse. They are a fragrant, fragrant offering and acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. They are not compulsive. It's not there to earn points, but to be given freely. This is, again, look at 2 Corinthians 9, 7. Not reluctantly or under a compulsion. God loves a cheerful giver. You might have seen in the news of Warren Buffett, who's, I think, the third uh, most wealthy man in the world. Uh, this week, he gave a total of, uh, let's see, $2.86 billion in donations. $2.86 billion he gave. He's done that now for, uh, it's his 11th annual year giving donations. Because he, he and the, the Gates uh, people came up with what they called the Giving Pledge in, 19, in, in 2010, which was a call on people to give 
the wealthiest people on earth to give over at least 50% of their assets away to charity before they die or after their death. This is the 11th year he's done it. He has, he has given away more than $24.3 billion since 2006. Here, here's what he said about his pledge, which says, my pledge is, he's decided not just 50. He says he's going to give away 99% of his wealth. He gets lots of letters. He said, my, first my pledge, more than 99% of my wealth will go to philanthropy during my lifetime or death. Measured by dollars, this commitment is large. In comparative sense, though, many individuals give more to others every day. Now listen to this. Because this is where becoming an enthusiastic giver is not just an amount. It's, it's a freedom of the heart. It comes from a place of joy and sacrifice to God. Now I have no idea where Warren Buffett stands with God. But listen to what he says. Millions of people who regularly contribute to churches, schools, and other organizations thereby relinquish the use of funds that would otherwise benefit their own families. The dollars these people drop into a collection plate or give to a United Way mean foregone movies, dinners out, or other personal pleasures. In contrast, my family and I will give up nothing we need or want by fulfilling this 99% pledge. Now, I appreciate that. But what I appreciate more than him giving those billions is when I get to see that somebody gets it because the reason they sacrifice and they, they give a sacrifice is because they know that they are held so tightly in the love and protection and care and provision of the Lord Jesus Christ that they don't have to have anything that they're given that they could turn around and just mirror his character by being a dispenser of it in his name. That's how you knew that they got it. And Paul says he's grateful because of this indicator. Look back at verse 17. He goes, I'm glad you did that. In verse 14, he says, it's good, good of you to share in it. Verse 17, because not that I'm looking for a gift. Here's what I'm looking for. I'm looking for what may be credited to your account. Do you remember the ledger of righteousness? And all the things he said were credited to my account. They don't, they don't accomplish anything. I consider them rubbish. I consider them like a dung pile. We ripped it off and said, all the things that I would credit my account that God make, give me a standing with God, those ripped out and you just replace it with one thing and that is knowing Christ. Isn't it funny that when somebody, that's all they're doing, and then as a result, they don't give in order to put it on the ledger. They don't, get it because, they don't give because they're trying, thinking it's going to make them feel better as a person or make them better in God's eyes. They, they, they don't give for that reason. When it happens, you know what God does? He adds that act to their account. Not because they earned anything, but just because he recognizes their heart. He blesses them as a result of that. And Paul says... I am so grateful. There is nothing more gratifying to him. He rejoices over the fact that he's got a group of people that have been entrusted to his care and they get it. Can I tell you that this week I had a little taste of what that feels like? A little bit different scenario, but a little taste. Because, you know, when God began to stir and began to turn the course of my our lives and ministry, and a few weeks ago we announced to everybody that that is happening. Um, our elders and our staff, we're nervous and we pray and how do we make sure we do this right? And, we t- and so we said, you know, we, we need to 
this is what we're about here. We're a community, so let's, let's invite people to come together and talk. Let's get invite them to say what's on their mind. Let's, let's, so we did these town hall meetings, three of them this past week. Many of you were there. And as, as I'm praying for those and getting ready for those, there's something that's true in my, in my, has, was true in my own soul. And that is, you know that you've said from the beginning, there's something distinct about what we're doing here. There's something really significant that we want to be true of us. And that is that this is all about Jesus. It is all about his love and living in community, that the, the core of what a church is supposed to be is the koinonia of the Spirit of God in the collective group so that it is not dependent on one person. It is not dependent on who talks on Sunday. It is not dependent on who the, the, the prime leader is. It needs to be independent of that and be healthy because it comes out of the hearts of the people. That's what, we, that's what we've said is true. That's what we want to be true. And so all leading up to those, the times... Of this week, I'm thinking, how do I help communicate to our folks that that's who, what we want to be about, that that's what was supposed to be true? And so we get in those meetings, explain what's going on, and something happened, and it happened in every one of them. If you were there, you know this. I didn't have to say it. I'm ready to say it. I'm fearful I need how hard I have to say it. And instead, before I have a chance to say it, you, the people who are the followers of Jesus, they show they get it. You know how they show they get it? Because they said, before they were ever prompted, before anybody was asking them, they said, you know what I think? I don't come here because of you. Sorry to offend you. And I'm, like, I'm saying, hallelujah. This was never about you. There is something that God is doing in my life. There's something that he accomplishes here. Yes, you're part of that. Yes, we're going to miss you. But you know what? It's going to go on. Can I tell you? that there, is, there was no more exhilarating joy in my last month than to watch that happen and sit back and say, they get it. Thank you. And can I just say, thank you for getting it. Thank you for living it. Thank you for not, for not just saying it, but carrying it around and making it part of your internal joy, even in the middle of uncertainty and some pain or some doubt. And also for doing something about it. Paul is enthused and he's grateful and he says, you get it. So when it comes to this much bigger part of our lives, of, of saying, where's my joy come from? Is, can it be true? It, it raises us with a couple questions. It leaves us with a couple questions that we can apply to ourselves. And the question is, do I fully get it? Is, is my life submerged in the guaranteed truths? So it's not just something I say. It's not just something I could quote. It's something I'm aware of and I live out in the moment. By the way, I just if this helps at all, just I did this because I took some of this to speak at another uh, somewhere in town recently. And we just printed these up and people took them. And we had some. And I thought, you know what? I'm going to just give these to you if you want them. This... This may or may not help you, but those three things which you say, are you kidding? We, how many times have you said it? You don't need to remind us anymore. Well, if you would like one, these are at the Welcome Town. It's got a couple of the passages at the bottom. And it's just something that if you want, you can take as just a reminder to say, there, there's a triplet of truths that if they're true, they should change my perspective. They can change my perspective in any and every circumstance. If you want one of those, you can grab one while they last. 
The question is, do I, do I get it? Is my life submerged in that? And if it is, according to what I, we see here, it'll show. It'll show. It'll show because the clenching of your heart internally will release a little bit more and a little bit more. It'll clench and unclench, clench and unclench, but you'll see the pattern. It'll, it'll show because there's a, a, a sense of peace that you will experience or are experiencing that you'll say, oh, it's true. I get it. I have contentment in my world more than I used to. And it'll show externally because you will be, find yourself more and more actively participating and being an enthusiastic giver of your time and your energies and your finances in ways that bless others because all your needs are met. So, when Paul finishes this, he says a couple things happen. Verse 19, my God will meet all your needs. And then, the grace of God will be with your spirit at the end. In verse 20, it says, he'll get all the glory forever and ever. Can I just ask you? You don't get it, do you? Or do you? If so, this is our chance to live this out. Let's do that. Let's pray.